Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we are talking about reuse solutions to the epic challenge of medical waste with our Reusees 2023 Activist of the Year, Dan Vukalic. Now, taking on throwaway culture from a unique angle, Dan provides hospital managers and policymakers with the tools to reduce costs, wastes, and greenhouse emissions through the safe reuse of single-use medical devices. When he began this work in 2000, about $20 million worth of single-use devices were collected and reprocessed at a handful of hospitals. Today, over $468 million worth of these devices are reused at over 10,500 hospitals worldwide. And over the years, he's also worked tirelessly to advocate for strict regulations globally to level the playing field and keep patients safe. He also educates EU and U.S. policymakers on well-designed life cycle studies and works with surgeons, nurses, and hospital purchasing agents to help make throw away go away in our medical system. So, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today about this fast-growing reuse sector. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's good to see you, and I'm, I'm appreciative of you having me. Yeah. So let's start a little bit with how you got into this unique line of work, the interwebs, where I always do a little research ahead of time. Tell me that you studied poli-sci in college and soon after landed a job with the Association of Medical Device Reprocessors, got a JD in law along the way, and have been helping lead this group now for 20-plus years. So did you seek out this reuse niche or did it find you along the way? Yeah. Did they find me or did I find them? It's, it's, uh, it is a unique niche to be in. Um, I, I like to think that I have sort of grown up with them and them with me. Reprocessing of single-use devices had been happening since the 1980s, but it wasn't until the late 1990s that a regulated professional industry emerged and they came together and they needed a trade association to set standards and to promote regulation and to discuss the benefits um, in a forum of promoting more research towards the cost savings or the waste savings associated with reprocessing. And so that's where I came in. Um, as you pointed out at the beginning of the interview, you know, that first year I was here, 20, 2000, we did about $20 million of savings for U.S. hospitals, and I think we're at nearly half a billion now. So the growth has been quite tremendous. Um, and these companies were kind enough to let me go to law school at night in the early days. And so my, my unique area of expertise is medical device reprocessing laws and regulation. So not a, indeed a niche subject, but I'm the guy. <laughs> I know everything about wow. it. Oh, my gosh. So many questions to follow up. Um, I want to start. You just mentioned the law degree. So a lot of our listeners are working on policy and different aspects of reuse. So I'm especially interested to look under the hood a little bit um, on how has that law background helped with the policy work that you're doing. And I imagine that you are also doing a lot of organizing and educating along the way. So what do you feel like have been some of the most essential skills for you to take on this huge paradigm shifting change in a field that hasn't been that open to it from what I understand? No, healthcare has been pretty resistant towards efforts to make it more green or sustainable. And because these products, many of these medical devices will be used on you or in you, the FDA or, or their 
equivalent outside of the U.S. have to require very stringent standards for safety and effectiveness. And a lot of people have thought, well, then let's just omit healthcare from this broad mandate of being more green because it's too difficult or that's one sector we should ignore. And I think quite the opposite is true. In healthcare, we are particularly emitting, particularly wasteful and particularly costly in a large part because we have a disposable mentality. Oh, there's some patient safety risk if we reuse anything. So make everything disposable and we'll just throw it away. And that has now made healthcare, if it were a country, globally, the fifth biggest polluting uh, country on earth. Uh, 4.4% of all global emissions are coming from the healthcare sector. It's 8.5% in the US. We're supposed to be making people healthier, not sicker. And so if we're creating all this trash and all of this waste, which gets pumped into the environment, and it gives our patient populations cancer or asthma or breathing difficulties, Shame on us. We have a particular responsibility, I think, uh, to do no, do no harm to our patients and so, you know, to clean up our act. So, you know, one of the challenges to your question has been, well, healthcare is special and let's leave it alone. And my argument is the opposite. Healthcare, because of our premise to do no harm, has a special responsibility to clean up our act. And so overzealousness with regard to infection control can be you know, a reason people are fearful from changing. But I think we have way overreacted. The pendulum has swung from the 1980s where things were all made of glass and steel to now things being almost entirely made out of plastic and that we just throw it away after one use. Um, but there's no way. There's just somewhere else and it becomes somebody else's problem. And it's most likely the local communities that are incinerating this garbage who are going to suffer. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the notes I was thinking about in prepping this show is that I have some uh, healthcare workers in my family who, when I got into the plastic pollution space, they said, oh, you should tackle medical waste. And I was one of those people who said, man, that's a, that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, as you said, the mindsets around safety uh, are, have to be huge barriers. And so um, I do want to come back to the skills question, but w- while we're on this thread, I know from, you know, again, my own background experience, I worked in a uh, molecular bio lab when I was in college, I believe. And I used to spend a lot of time preparing instruments for autoclaves, the good old fashioned way where you'd take steel medical instruments and put them in a very high heat, high uh, pressure cleaning environment, which was used for surgery for a very long time, still is in a large way. So maybe you can walk us through a little bit, you know, some of these developments that have shifted materials to plastics and other disposables, I'm sure have um, very good medical value. And some of them maybe don't. And it's more of a business model because when mm-hmm. things have to mm-hmm. be thrown away, then we don't you need to keep purchasing them. So can you kind of flesh out the landscape a little bit in terms of sure. the most egregiously unnecessary parts of the medical waste and parts that are maybe helping in some way where they're not the the biggest hurdle? Yeah. So, you know, medical instrumentation is becoming increasingly complex and intricate. You know, think laparoscopic surgery 30 years ago, that was avant-garde, but now it's standard place. If you need an appendectomy or a hysterectomy, it can be done with minimally invasive techniques, a minimal incision, which means those medical devices are smaller. And largely the med tech industry has responded to this demand by making all of these instruments disposable. Coincidentally, if you make these instruments disposable, you sell a lot more devices because the hospital has to come back and buy a new one every time. So for me, it's egregious that we would just completely jump entirely into everything is disposable 
I mean, a, a laparoscopic or harmonic ultrasonic scalpel, a very commonly used device that essentially uses ultrasonic technology to cut or cauterize tissue, could be $450 per scalpel, and we're throwing that away after one use. Or an ultrasound diagnostic catheter, sort of a minimally invasive way of imaging the heart, can cost up to $2,500 per catheter. It has a microchip, gold, platinum, rare earth metals in it, and we're throwing it away after one use. So I'd rather work with the larger med tech industry to develop product that can be commercially reprocessed with the companies that I represent, meaning it may be too intricate or complex to be reprocessed in the hospital, but it can be done. And we know it can be done because FDA is clearing or approving our methods. But right now, the larger med tech industry is still focused on forcing obsolescence or putting microchips in these devices to make sure they shut off after just one use where we're focused on maximizing the lifespan. And so I'd like to see greater cooperation between the larger med tech companies and the reprocessors to offer the best of both worlds to these hospitals where we will make a device last as long as possible with the acknowledgement it can't go down to central sterile in the basement of the hospital. It requires the specialized expertise of FDA regulated reprocessors to do it. I think that's the future and it's more of a service model, right? Instead mm -hmm. of a linear production model where we take make waste, we will take from the earth raw materials, but we will extend the lifespan of these products as many times, as many surgeries as safe and effectively possible so that we don't have to go back to the earth and extract all these raw materials, which is obviously better for the patient who is paying, for the hospital who has to pay for all of these things as well. But I think it's actually in the best interest of the medical device manufacturers. There's only so many microchips we can make. And the shortages that continue to this day demonstrate there are extreme vulnerabilities in our supply chain. So why wouldn't you take action to shore up and build more resilience into your supply chain by maximizing the lifespan of the assets you already have? Mm. Yeah, and the service model you're speaking to is is obviously a theme that comes up a lot on this show because many of the solutions to um, the plastic pollution problem involve building new economies of service provision rather than um, a disposable product. So I, I'm kind of curious, so how's it going with that argument? I know you guys have made a ton of progress and you're still probably feeling a little bit like David against Goliath fighting these really large companies that have a business interest in continuing yeah. uh, business as usual. So what have, what have you found to be some of the most effective ways to um, get some leverage? Yeah, COVID has changed everything. Boy, did my career change after COVID. Suddenly, everybody was aware of the wastefulness in the healthcare system because everyone saw all of the masks, all of the gloves, all of the syringes, all of the vials, and everything that just gets thrown away after one use. I think people generally knew healthcare was wasteful, but had no idea until the pandemic hit and we were creating all of this waste and then experiencing shortages because, you know, because of the global supply chain and the vulnerabilities associated with it. The other thing then that has happened since COVID is an immense amount of research has emerged underscoring sort of the point I made earlier about how particularly toxic and emitting healthcare is. So it's not just anecdotal, we see it, but we actually have the data now to show. So that has been very powerful in providing attention to the issue um, which I'm you know, thrilled to talk about every day, which what, what can we do to sort of change the economy we have in healthcare to be more resilient, to be less wasteful, to be less costly, to be more responsible. And so I think things are changing. Things are changing on the one hand very rapidly, on the other hand, never fast enough. I'm sure many of your people can relate to that. Um, but 
I, I think there's an acknowledgement, as you said, that the business model has to change. I think it will be a servicization type business model for many of these medical products that we rely on. Rather than paying per device, we will pay per procedure, per use. Um, some of my members are original manufacturers who are also reprocessors. And so they're able to offer a blend of products where some may be new pulse oximeter sensors and some may be remanufactured or reprocessed pulse oximeter centers, sensors, but they're all cleared and approved by FDA. They all meet the same safety and efficacy standards. And so the hospital is getting the benefit of a blended overall lower all price and lower all you know, impact on, on emissions. Um, but I'd like to go much further. I'd like I'd like to build a better mousetrap with some of these larger med tech companies and work with them rather than against them in order to create a service model economy for many of these very expensive medical devices. And what do you think that might look like? What's your vision of if you could have the magic wand and just, you know, walk forward and make whatever changes you would like? Well, the example that I've learned is the airline industry. So GE and Rolls-Royce, who had traditionally been the major manufacturers of aircraft engines, don't sell aircraft engines anymore. They sell aircraft engine hours. And so suddenly the alignment between the commercial airlines and the airline engine manufacturers are, are more attuned. So a hospital when buying medical devices is sort of at odds with their medical device supplier. The more the medical device supplier sells, you know, the more they make, but it costs the hospital. But if we move to a model for med tech like they have done for engines, the manufacturer will be incentivized to make a better engine that's more easily repairable or, or fixable, where components and parts are more readily available, where it's more efficient, has greater uptime, lower downtime. And so they have to create less engines, which is good from an emissions and a waste standpoint. We don't want more. We don't want to incentivize the creation of just more engines that are increasingly better. And so I think MedTech is the same way. And so with the data we have as reprocessors, we know the failure points of medical devices. We know the nooks and crannies that get dirty. That's our expertise. The larger medtech industry is brilliant at creating life-saving technology, so we need them. But I'd rather work together where we can capitalize on our strengths of knowing how devices need to be cleaned and sterilized, their strengths on developing novel technology, and then offering a service model where we're not going to sell you as many laparoscopic trocars as you'll buy, will sell you as many laparoscopic trocar procedures you can do. And therefore we need to make less, you know, less laparoscopic instruments at greater quality for longer life. Mm. Yeah. And you know, what you just did there of referencing another industry as a model is part of, I think, what will be interesting for a lot of our listeners in listening to this story, because a lot of people in the reuse movement, as we mentioned, aren't focused on medical waste. And so I'm really curious, you've been at this for so long. And as we mentioned earlier, you have a really varied background that you're bringing to the table at this point. You've got the legal and the policy um, training. Clearly, you're doing a lot of sales and um, pitching of this idea and working on the business case. And I'm sure a lot of navigating the politics and, and all of those elements as well. So as much as you can, stepping back from your own experience in this space, what do you feel like are some of the key lessons learned about how to get this kind of change that might be hmm. relevant and interesting for those who are working on um, reusable foodware and other, other sector? Yeah, there have been many lessons along the way. As I said earlier, you know, medical devices are very particular in that you can't have anything second rate. And so one lesson I've had over these 20 years is regulation is legitimization. Now, not every product needs to be regulated, right? But there's peace of mind in knowing that in our case, every device has been cleared or approved by FDA, safe and effective. 
reprocessed or new, every device is the same level of safe and effective. And so that's been important. And that's one, one lesson, you know, that may be more unique to highly regulated products like aircraft engines. You want to know that every aircraft engine, regardless of what percentage of the original material or raw, you know, or components are new are safe and effective. So for us, regulation is one. The other is because of this issue of patient safety concern, I, I called it the fear and doubt campaign. Mm-hmm. And the manufacturers, at least then, were very successful in scaring the bejesus out of everybody. They don't reuse anything, just throw everything away. You can't accept any risk in giving care to patients. But it requires on really scare tactics, not facts or science. And my industry has really relied. And one lesson I've learned is you have to lead with the facts and the science. If you go in and you lead people on emotions, I find that it becomes misleading and people don't like to be misled. And so I have the benefit of knowing that all of my members' products have been reviewed by FDA and are safe and effective. And so we know the data. How many adverse events are there? Have there been any lawsuits? Like we know these products are safe and effective. And so I lead with that. And that and and cutting out sort of that fear and doubt campaign has been really a, a strong lesson I've learned over the years in order to sort of get buy-in to the legitimacy of what it is that we're doing. Mm. And I'm guessing that the fear and doubt piece got stronger after COVID, uh, at least in the period, speaking of misinformation, we know there was a period where everybody was led to believe that touching something could transmit. um, And that had a huge impact in the food sector in particular. Um, But it sounds like at least in the healthcare space where you have a lot of people with a strong science background, once they get the new information, they will adjust quickly. Um, Am I guessing right there or did COVID have a different effect on on that particular trend? Well, just to remind you, so we were in a crisis. And so the medical devices that we're reprocessing that the original manufacturer labeled for single use are durable enough to be reused three, five, sometimes 10 times. And we have the data to show that. But remember during COVID, we were... I say we, but all of us were reusing single use um, masks, you know, and so that mm-hmm. is a device that according to, you know, our own data would never, you know, that would never meet our standards, but it was a crisis. There weren't enough masks and it was either the difference between reusing a mask or no mask at all. And so we stepped up under FDA's emergency use authorizations and, and decontaminated masks for hospitals to extend the life because there was no alternative. So at that time, some of the manufacturers of those masks and other products stood up and said, this isn't safe. We shouldn't be doing this. But it was a crisis. There was no alternative. And so I remember on being on one of these listservs of professionals in hospitals who were in charge of decontamination and central sterile. And he, and he wrote a pretty hostile note back like, you need to join the world of the rest of us are living in. Like, this is a crisis. We don't have mass period. So, you know, to say this isn't safe, you shouldn't be doing it. it, it is nonsensical when we have no alternative. So now we're past that. And I think the, the lesson we learn is we can never send our healthcare professionals to fight a respiratory plague without PPE. I mean, how irresponsible in the richest nation on earth to have done this. So we, we sure as hell better learn the lesson that we need to build resi- resilience or reusability or other sort of factors into our supply chain and healthcare purchasing so that we don't put them in that position again. And that's a very strong argument. And so while there were some concerns over patient safety, I think people quickly realized the larger issue of, is everything really single use or can we develop mm-hmm. you know, methods to extend the lifespan of things? Yeah. So the pandemic really put the power of 
resilience in the supply chain for basic safety and functioning the medical system, like really high up on the priority list. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, something I'm curious to ask you about is you have been at this for, I think, 20 plus years at this point and fighting a very uphill battle a lot of the time. So I am curious, just at a personal level, what has helped you get out of bed every day and keep working on this in the hard times, especially? Yeah, indeed. It has been. <laughs> it has been an uphill battle, often David versus Goliath. But, you know, that's what gets me out of bed every day. At the at the end of the day, we're doing the right thing. You know, I should have said at the beginning of the interview when you were asking, you know, did I come to the reprocessors or they come to me? And, and my answer was we sort of grew up together. But actually growing up, I, I grew up in Minnesota. Coincidentally, Minnesota is a hotbed for med tech companies. Um, so I went to Washington, D.C. And, and, and went to college here, and I eventually started with, with AMDR. But growing up in Minnesota, my, my grandmother was an OR nurse. She was trained during World War II. Mm. And by the 80s, so you know when I was a young child, things were starting to move to plastic disposables and away from reusable metals and glass. And a lot of the products that we still encounter that create this wastefulness in healthcare, we call opened but unused meaning the products have been taken out of their sterile packaging but are never used. For instance, you may need stitches, and so they'll open up six packs of stitches because they want to have everything that the doctor could possibly need available while you're there on the OR table, and they only use one pack. So five of the six pack of stitches will end up in the garbage. But all kinds of drapes, gowns, all these other products that are disposable, and I remember my grandmother would always bring home these things. Like at Christmas time, it was you know, paper, plastic drapes for, for <laughs> gift wrap packaging. And I used to play with an irrigating syringe in the bathtub, which in retrospect is probably pretty weird. But for me, that was probably normal. <laughs> so I always had There's this... Always some interesting background story. <laughs> <laughs> so I always had this firsthand knowledge of how wasteful healthcare was because grandma was bringing home and reusing these things when they couldn't be used in a, in a clinical setting anymore. And somehow that has turned into my career. But um, it's what gets me out of bed every day. Originally... What brought me to this were the sustainability benefits. But I have to admit, in the first two decades of my doing this, it's the financial savings. It costs less to reuse what you have than to go out and buy new. And the perception- Especially in healthcare, right? Which we all know is egregiously overpriced. Yeah. And so we, we desperately need savings or ways to safely find ways to cut costs. And so that was what reprocessing did for 20 years. But now, since COVID- because of the spotlight shined on the vulnerabilities in our supply chain and the need to keep things more local at home and, and the need to reduce emissions and waste, I think those are now you know, as important as the cost savings associated with reasons why hospitals reprocess and why you know, this, this is my life's work. Mm. And if there's something that you could go back and tell the 20-something version of yourself that just fell into this line of work and give him a piece of advice from the version that's been through these 20 years of experience, what would you say? Oh, boy. Well, you never stop learning. Like I said, I'm always been interested in the sustainability benefits. But even five years ago, I didn't know what a life cycle assessment was. I didn't know what carbon benchmarking was. And so things constantly evolve and I've had to constantly learn. And I'm appreciative of that. My heart of hearts knew that if you reuse what you already had, that was good. But we've now found ways to prove it through life cycle assessments and carbon benchmarking and, and other means to sort of quantify in a scientifically objective way. So 
I think going with your gut and knowing you're doing the right thing was important, but also remaining vigilant and continuing to avail myself of, of, you know, all these lessons I've learned about how to make the best case have been, have continued to make this job challenging and exciting for me. It would have been good, very strong takeaways. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it must be very satisfying at this point to see the amount of impact you've been able to have in a space that nobody thought was movable. Yeah, yeah but I think we we have a long way to go. I think my most exciting times are ahead. You know, I like to brag that we went from 20 million to nearly half a billion in the course of 20 years, but I think the rapidity, you know, when which we can dramatically increase that should skyrocket now. You know, for all the reasons we talked about on this call, supply chain resilience, emissions, waste. I think things are, the wind is really at our back, but I'm also very thrilled now to see a younger generation of clinicians that are keenly interested in waste and emissions and cost in a way that the older generations were not. And that's a huge positive sign for me because ultimately if we're spending all of these resources for a subset of the population that you know can afford it, it's effectively depriving these services to people who can't afford it. And so there's just an, in, there's so many reasons to be looking at circular business models. And I'm thrilled to see that the younger generation are keenly interested in what the cost would be both environmentally and financially for the patients with the, the tools they choose to use. Yeah. And knowing that healthcare is such a big industry and I am curious and we're seeing this in other reuse spaces. How do you see the landscape changing for the different businesses that are working in this space? And are there new emerging opportunities that, um, you know, from your vantage point, it's like if some entrepreneur starts to pay attention to this, then we can really help open up this space. Yeah, I, I think, you know, so in healthcare, the hospitals get reimbursed separately from the physicians. And historically, then the physicians have had no skin in the game, meaning they don't really care what anything costs. They get reimbursed mm-hmm. separately. And that's sort of a perverse incentive. We should reward doctors for choosing the least expensive, least you know wasteful means of providing care. And traditionally, they haven't done so. So I think a big change would be to somehow induce or reward physicians to make decisions that are more financially and environmentally sustainable. And so I hope, you know, the Biden administration is starting to bring attention to these issues. They're promoting reprocessing and reuse for healthcare products as a way to build resilience and minimize supply chain disruptions. And so, so that's great. But I think our reimbursement model needs to dramatically change to start to incentivize sort of better purchasing behavior. Um, as, and then also, you know, I'm thrilled just to see that the younger generation is more interested in cost and waste, but in order for it to translate where the manufacturers will change their offerings, they need to hear this constant drum of attention from their users. Enough of this. I don't want to spend $450 and have to throw it away after one use, either reduce the cost uh, or maximize the lifespan on these products by giving it more than one use. Yeah. And that kind of ties to one of the last questions I wanted to ask you here in terms of for our listeners who are fired up now and want to get involved and help on this. What are some of the best ways um, if if they're not involved? I, clearly, it sounds like physicians have a lot of power here. But yeah. for those who are on the patient side, yeah. how can we speak up in a um, high impact way? Well, I just I had to have surgery myself recently. So being the reprocessing guy, I was probably wandering the facility a little more than I should have, but I was checking the bins to make sure they had reprocessing collection points. And I think the same could apply to anyone. You know, it's it's not just environmentally 
prudent to reprocess, but it reduces cost and it reduces waste and it builds supply chain resilience. And so ask, are you reprocessing? Are you buying reusable over disposable? And not just in the, you know, meaning with the medical devices, not just in the, you know, the laundry or the cafeteria, but for these very expensive medical technologies. Awesome. That's clear. And so last question, I know there's probably so much more that we haven't touched on. Is there anything else that you wanted to speak to that I haven't asked you about? No, I really appreciate this opportunity. As you said at the beginning of the call, if you're not in healthcare, you may not realize how particularly wasteful healthcare is. And I think that's all the more reason that we should be focusing on making healthcare green is because we're in the business of making people healthier. We shouldn't be making them sicker. And so um, if this interests others, that's great. Uh, You know, I know you'll share my contact information, but I'm very keen on working with all those in sort of the reuse economy to promote circularity, reduce waste, reduce emissions, and promote more resilience for American supply chains. Awesome. Well, I have a huge, uh, taking my hat off to you. It's incredible work. I'm so glad that you exist and that you're, you've made this tremendous progress. And now we all know that we can support what you're doing and get behind it. We will share uh, the link to your website in the show notes. And, uh, it, it's been an honor to speak with you. Thank you for doing what you do. And we, um, appreciate you through the Reusies award and beyond and, um, wishing you all the success we talked about today in these next phases of your work. Well, very kind. Thank you very much. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review. Talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode, as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.